Well, hello again, Timberline family. It's wonderful to be with you. And here we are in the second week in a series on Ephesians. Uh, we'll be looking at a letter, actually reading somebody else's mail, written by an old man in a Roman prison in the first century to a church in Western Turkey in a major city called Ephesus. Now, my question is this, how do I, in 2021, even begin to identify with that guy? I mean, this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. He's the most obvious person in the New Testament besides Jesus himself. It's true that he's a redeemed terrorist. I, I get that. But what might we have in common? That's my question. Let me tell you where I connect. You, you've heard me say scores of times from right here, I'm a kid from East Oakland, California. Well, that's where I connect. Imagine with me this. It's a bunch of years ago. I'm 12 years old. It's a Saturday. I'm with my two buddies, the Opie twins. And uh, we got a few dollars in our pockets and we're on the move together. This is the key. We're on the move together. And I have to tell you, it doesn't get much better than that. Let me be more specific. It's the last Saturday in March in 1954. And we're sort of the three musketeers and we're on a grand adventure because this is the week that the General Motors Motorama has come to San Francisco. Now General Motors from 1949 to 1961 did these things, these car shows, like the ultimate car show. And they did them in the big cities, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Miami and they'd bring out all their new models, and they'd bring out all the future models, and we were gonna go see it. We're 12 years old. And so we have stuff, right? And so we go on the key transit line, which is the bus system for a quarter, and we go down to the Port of Oakland, and there we get on a train for 50 cents that would take us across the San Francisco Bay Bridge on the lower deck, they don't have it anymore, and we'd go to the Civic Auditorium where they have the Motorama, and it was cool, and then we'd go out and we'd buy a hot dog from a street vendor, and then we'd go to Chinatown for the rest of the afternoon. I mean, it was a, it was a day. And that's where I feel my, my connection to Saul, or Paul the Apostle as we know him. Because the Apostle Paul, who was called Saul then, that's his Jewish name, was born in a place like Oakland. It was a port city. 12 miles up the Sindus River from the Mediterranean. And to really understand him, we have to look at that place because that place and what happened there in part is the drumbeat of his message in every letter, every place. That drumbeat is together. I think Saul, Paul, learned his heart for together, which we'll see unfold in Ephesians again. I think he learned it, started learning it in Tarsus. It's there we begin to understand his practice of not walking alone and almost always being with others. So let me, let me just do three and a half minutes of history, if I can do that. This will be painless. I know a lot of us don't like history, but you'll like this, I think. So here's Paul. He's in this Roman prison now, but he was born some 60 years earlier about the same time, scholars think, as Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem and 500 some miles to the north and a little to the west 
He's in Tarsus, Paul is born. Jesus was a country person. He was rural. The, the Gospels would show that apart from going to Egypt, he would never probably go more than 90 miles from his home. Not so with Paul. He would travel more than 10,000 miles, mostly walking, and we read about it in the scripture. He's a city kid. The city is called Tarsus, as I've already said. It's in a province called Cilicia. His father, like Jesus' father, taught him building and craftsmanship. His father, Paul's father, apparently taught him tent making. They used goat skins, goat hides, and a woven uh, hair on the goat to make tents. And in this picture of the Med, the Mediterranean, Cilicia is up in the far corner, just before you make the turn to go down into Syria, Palestine, and all of that. That's where the river is. That's where Paul was born. And this isn't any old city, Tarsus. It's one of the oldest urban centers in the world. For thousands of years, that site was populated before Saul was born there. And it was populated by the Hittites and the Persians and the Greeks. And now, in his day, the Romans. It's the capital of Rome's Eastern Empire. It's a crossroads for transport and commerce, huge in shipping and agriculture and linens, supplied all kinds of products and, and things to Rome. But they had a huge problem. About 60 years or so before Saul was born, and a hundred and some years before that, pirates ruled the Mediterranean. That's always been a problem in the Mediterranean. But these were particular kinds of pirates. They were from the province where Paul was brought up, Cilicia. And without going into all the details, 60 years before Paul, Pompey came from Rome with 500 ships, took out the pirates, captured 20,000 of them, but didn't kill them. What they did was to rehab them, if you will, and make them farmers and agrarians around the area where Paul was brought up and up into the Taurus Mountains. So here's this city that Paul grows up in. I would say it's probably got a rough and ready waterfront with sailing ships coming up there all the time. It had wealth and opulence. It had families of these former pirates who were in the farmers' markets and bazaars, Roman soldiers on the streets, sailors living in, catch this, goat hair tents on the banks of the river, Stoic philosophers. Greek philosophy was big under Rome, and the Stoics essentially said this is a very simplified version. Whatever happens, it's not what happens that's the, that's the problem, but if you can see that problem in a different way, interpret it in a different way, then you can make it through. So positive attitude for those guys is all. And then you have mystery fertility cults, like on every corner, you got magic and oracles and secret ceremonies. And then you have the goddess Aphrodite, which is the Greek name. The Roman name is Venus. This is the goddess of love. So Paul, Saul is brought up in this cultural petri dish, this stew, if you will, of commerce and military and pagan religious practices and Greek philosophers and Roman structures and ancient history. And that's his place. But in that same mix was another unique community. It's very religious, very conservative, rule followers. This is the Jewish community in, in the heart, if you will, of Tarsus. And his parents are Pharisees, the strictest kind of Jewish people. And Saul will become one of those. 
He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's named Saul after the first king of Israel. Tribe of Benjamin is Saul's tribe, the king, and it's a warrior tribe. So he may have been born in Tarsus, but he was born into this Jewish community of Tarsus. And it's not just any Jewish community. Because of Tarsus's place in the empire, this Caesar said, we will let you practice your religion freely and you'll be tax exempt. And, and one more thing, we're going to make you all citizens of Rome. So you have Jewish people who are citizens of Rome, which was pretty unusual in the day. These were a minority who depended on each other and Yahweh. They embodied we and us and together. If you're part of a minority, if I'm part of a minority, that's what it is. You are together in that. Paul, as a boy, no doubt memorized Torah. That's what young Jewish boys do. And the first thing he would read in the early part of Genesis was the spirit of God brooding over creation. And he just goes a little ways down and he reads God saying, let us, plural, make man in our image, two kinds, male and female. And then he goes a little farther and it says, it is not good for man to be alone. I think he heard, read, and quite possibly understood those words early on. And I think it shows up in the way he does the king's business, God's business, later on. Later, he'd go to Jerusalem, probably as a teenager, to study under the grand master of Judaism at that time, one of the great teachers by the name of Gamaliel. And in his 30s, when he's back there in that area, he's so fierce for God that he's going to take out these heretics, if you will, these, these people, these Jewish people who have started believing in this radical crazy personality named Jesus of Nazareth. And he meets more than his match, Saul does, on the road to Damascus. Blinding light changes his life. There are three touch points in Saul's life. Tarsus, Jerusalem, and the road to Damascus. If, if we understand that history, if we grapple with that history, we understand the next 30 years, if you will, of his travel across Asia Minor, which we know as Turkey today, on into Greece and to Rome. Listen to how Jesus identifies and commissions Paul after the road to Damascus incident. Saul has literally been knocked down by the Most High and blinded for three days. And by the way, our text today is found in the 20th chapter of Acts. And you say, are, are you ever going to get to that? Yeah, just, just a couple minutes. I'm going to get there. So here's Acts 9. This is, Saul is, has been blinded and God speaks to a man in Damascus named Ananias and he wants him to go and speak to Saul. And Ananias is hesitant because this guy's the guy who kills us, isn't he? So this is how it reads, 9:10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. So Jesus identifies him from his roots, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. And here comes the commission. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You say, why are you telling us all this about Tarsus and Jerusalem 
and Damascus. Well, my first point would be this, and if you're taking notes, just jot this down. God uses our past to shape our future. God uses our past to shape our future. You say, well, what about the bad stuff? That too. Good, bad, ugly, people, events, whatever, happenings. You've heard me talk about my roots in India. And here I am, a little kid, four years old, starting in a British boarding school. I'm there for three years. And I'm in a, I'm in a late colonial enclave of the Brits, if you will, the British people. And they will march out of India when I'm still there. But it's surrounded by Indian culture, by Hindu culture, by all kinds of practices. And that's the lens through which I have seen my world for all these years. That peace, because I was young and it really impacted me. And people say, well, what did that do with all those experiences? Like you're a, what they call a third culture kid when you're a missionary kid. And you've got the British thing in New Zealand and Australia, and you've got the Hindu culture and the Tamil people. What it did for me was that it, it let me not be afraid of things or people that were different than I. That's what it did. It was a huge gift to me because I would submit that like seven and a half billion people minus one in the world are different than I am. So it's a wonderful thing to be able to not be afraid of difference, but to embrace it. So God used the Tarsus in Saul of Tarsus to grow his kingdom. He used Jerusalem to, to root Paul in truth and justice. I think he used Damascus. I know he used Damascus to give it all a redemptive meaning and power. And, and so when Paul has to stand before rulers and kings and princes later on in the last few years of his life, he doesn't set out logical argument for why he's doing what he's doing. What he does is to tell his story from the road of Damascus. And also he invokes the fact that he's from Tarsus, no mean city, and that he's also a Roman citizen because he's from that town. So his history carries with him all through his life. So you say, what do you, what do you mean past shapes future? Well, because some 20 years after road to Damascus, Saul walks into another Roman regional capital on the other side of the country, hundreds of miles to the west, called Ephesus. We're going we're gonna to read that letter starting next week that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. So here's a Jewish Saul transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, who's a Jewish guy that speaks Greek, and he's a Roman citizen, and it's another river town. It's got Roman gods and mystery cults and Greek philosophers and dominant center of commerce. It's got Roman soldiers on the street. And what he finds, I think, in Ephesus is Tarsus on steroids. That's what I think. And it doesn't scare him. It invites him. I, I think it's kind of like he's coming home and he's bringing friends because of this thing that he's had in community. He always walks with other people. He takes people with him. So second thought is that we are designed and called to be together. We're designed and called to be together. So when God says, let us make man in our image, it's not good for a man to be alone. He's not just whistling in the dark there. He's saying something profound about who we are. Many of you have heard me talk about the Harvard study on aging that now has gone on for 80 some years, where several hundred young men 
back in 1938 were recruited to do this study. Long story short, what happened there was this. They actually uh, checked on these guys every two years. I think I'm not sure that any of them are still alive at this speaking moment. But what they found out, because their response when asked this question, the question was, what do you think will make you happy? They responded that wealth and fame and achievement would make them happy. Later on in their years, when they came back to them, what they found was none of those three things was true. What they found was good relationships, period, satisfied people. What they found was that when people were alone, it was toxic. And when they were together, it was not only healing, sometimes physically, but certainly emotionally and spiritually. Who would have dreamed three years ago that in 2020, we would have sometimes family members in assisted care facilities shut away for months at a time where you couldn't see them or talk to them. And some of them would ask this question. I know I'm going to die or make this statement. My only question is, do I want to die of COVID or loneliness? That's the question. We would never have thought that two or three years ago. So the scriptures model together again and again, over and over. I mean, even from Adam and Eve, you know, God makes two, if you will. So Adam and Eve, you've got Noah and family, you've got Abraham and family, you've got Moses, Aaron and her and Miriam coming out of Egypt. You have David and Jonathan, King David. You have Daniel and his Hebrew brothers in exile. Then you get in the New Testament, you've got John, and John the Baptist and his disciples. Then Jesus, of course, is the perfect model of this. He's got 12 disciples and then three who are in a circle. And then you get to Acts. And the first part of Acts, first number of chapters, is primarily around Peter and John together. And you get to the last part of Acts, and it's Paul and company. You say, well, isn't that just like the FBI buddy system or something, or a special ops team that you drop in behind the lines? No. What it is is design. You and I are designed for together. It's destiny. It's what we are for. We are built for it. For us to be with God and God with us and us to be with each other is exactly the imprint that's on our souls. Listen to this. You know, Paul wrote 13 letters and six or seven of them don't just come from him. You know, I, I say to somebody, well, who wrote First Thessalonians, you know, to the church at Thessalonica, which was a northern Macedonian town. And we say, Paul, well, not exactly. That's not what the text says. Let me read you what the text says. First Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, Silas and Timothy. You say, well, they just carried his bags. You don't know that and I don't know that. I would submit that it's more than that. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Even his qualities are plurals. We, we always thank God for all of you, plural, and continually mention you in our prayers. And listen to this, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you 
for your sake. So we'll experience more of that when we get into the actual letter to the Ephesians next week. That'll start being unfolded and unpacked, as they say. So here's the deal. Paul has spent 10 years from 47 AD to 57 AD traveling back and forth across Turkey, over to Greece, finally over to Rome, three big trips. And the most time he spent in any given place was in Ephesus, two and a half, three years. And now he's heading back home toward Jerusalem or back toward Jerusalem. And then he'll go to Rome, as you find out when you read the end of the story, end of the book, if you will, in Acts. And then from Rome, home to heaven. So this is a map of Paul's third missionary journey. But as he comes across, he's been in northern Greece and Macedonia. And as he comes across and heads down the Aegean Sea, he wants to see his elder friends, his friends from Ephesus that he spent all those years with. And, um, but he doesn't want to go to Ephesus because then you get in the whole mishmash and besides he caused a riot the last time he was there. And he, but he just wants to say goodbye to his key friends. So Luke, the author of Acts and in Paul's party, writes this about leaving Greece and heading across the Aegean Sea. Acts 20, 13 through 16. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there, arrived off Chios. And the day after that, we were crossed over to Samos. And on the following day, arrived at Miletus. And here's just a little picture of where Miletus is in relationship, just in your mind, in relationship to Ephesus. It's down on the coast. It's 63 miles to, from Ephesus to Miletus. From Miletus, going on, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So <laughs> he has to send guys there. They walk 60 miles. These are the guys who walk 60 miles back. He said to them, and listen to the verbs in this. And I'm going to read a fair amount of scripture here because I just want to come back to particular pieces. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Acts 20, 17 and following. I served, you know how I lived, verse 18. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, that's Turkey. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful. There's another piece to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And he goes on in verse 22 and says, and now compelled by the spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit, there's that spirit, that same spirit that brooded over creation, okay? The Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Verse 25, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching, there's that together piece, gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Then he warns them, verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, will not spare the flock, verse 31. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. I've not coveted, here's another verb, I've not coveted 
anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companion. When he held up those hands, I have a feeling they were pretty gnarly. If it, that's a word from way back. Let's just say gnarled. Pretty gnarled. And, and they were scarred because when you're working with leather, leather and, and, and weaving goat hair, you're going to do stuff to your hands. I've supplied my own needs and the needs of my companion. Let me just parenthetically say this. It was the practice for a rabbi, for a teacher to have a, um, a work, some kind of labor to take care of his own needs so they wouldn't impact the community. With leather tools, he could set up shop anywhere. Go out in the, before it gets hot in the summertime, before dawn, go out, set up your table and you're making tents and people are coming by and several scholars have said this, that here is a person who said, I'm not eloquent. Paul said that of himself. But how many hundreds, thousands of conversations did he have back and forth with people who came to watch him work in leather? He would answer questions. He would challenge traditions. He would confront assumptions. And he goes on to say, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, here it comes, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I think this is the hinge of the passage. This is the foundation. Here is Paul, who's the giver. Here is Paul who understands that generosity is what makes together possible. You can't have relationship if you don't give. You can't have friendships if you don't give. I'm not talking money alone. I'm talking about time and attention and focus. There are three ways to live in this life. Giving, receiving, or taking. I think even the most generous person should learn to receive, you know. They should learn to receive because receiving isn't, he doesn't say that receiving is bad. He just says it's not as great as giving because giving is this thing that you generate. Giving is this thing that is self-directed and expresses the heart of God. But then come the takers, and he's just said there are going to be people who come. I've done all of these things, but there are going to be people come like savage wolves who are wanting to take people away, take you from the faith, take the stuff you have, be on your guard about this. So here's Paul's community back in Tarsus. Gave him identity. His parents, I believe, gave him love. Gamaliel gave him discipline and training. Jesus Christ gave him a new life on the road to Damascus and in essence said, I'm going to give you this ball. Give me that old guy. I'll give you a new guy. And you go give it away over the next three decades. And Paul gives us his story and Holy Spirit truth every time he pens a letter or dictates a letter. Giving, what a powerful thing. I, I've told you before, I have a brother-in-law I can't trust. He's a giver. He'll come to your house, borrow your car, go off, fill it up with gas, put new tires on it. And back when I was a college president years ago, we, Ruth and I had this Honda Accord. I went out and got it one day and there were new floor mats. I said, Ruth, did you get floor mats? She said, no, I thought you got floor mats. I said, I didn't get floor mats. I bet you, Blakely, your brother, John, I bet you he did it. It was back before cell phones. I call him on a landline and I say, John, did you get new floor mats for my Honda Accord? And he said, yeah. I said, when did you do that? 
He said, four months ago. <laughs> so I, I, I may not be observant, but I just want you all to know that I was really appreciative. So Paul gets done with his exhortations and he says this, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. That moment when you see someone's face no more is no small challenge. When physical presence stops, it's hard. I have watched, if you will, parents go on and other family, but it's a part of life, isn't it? But when we're together in Jesus forever, where we get to see your new face is just around the corner. So Port of Oakland, probably same year, 1954, we were saying goodbye to some missionary friends. And it was really before the day you got on planes and flew across the ocean. You know, they didn't have jets in 1954. This family was going to the Philippines and I'll never forget going down to the port. I love the sea. I love freighters because that's what it came home from India on. But we went down there and it was a, a freighter, probably five to 10,000 tons, which is not very big, called the California Golden Bear. And they took off the hawsers and they sounded that deep baritone whistle that uh, ships have. And it started backing out. And as I look back on it now, it's sort of like a timepiece period movie because people took out hankies and they started waving them at this family on the deck, waving back. And you can only have like a dozen passengers on a freighter. And we were waving and somebody started to sing Till we meet, till we meet, till we meet at Jesus' feet. Till we meet, till we meet, God be with you till we meet again. When I think of it now, it seems like a cheesy moment, except for the fact that it's true. And here is the God who comes along and says, you follow me, you give your life to me, I will give you friends, I will give you mission, I will give you my heart. And when people say, we'll never see your face again, you can say with me, guess again, because he is the Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is all about together in him touching the world. As I wrap this up, you may have said, you know, that's what I want. I want together. I want him in my life. I want to be in his. And I need this. It isn't like a snap of the fingers, but it is an act of obedience that when I say, Lord Jesus Christ, I like Paul without a blinding light, say, I want to follow you. I need your Holy Spirit, the one that brooded over creation to be in my life. And I take this step now to say, please come into my life, take care of my history and give me a future. I want that. If you're that person, I just want to pray. Even if you're not that person, I'm still going to pray for all of us. Father, here we are. You know us, 
You know our stories. You know the places that, that into which we were born. You know the places and the situations through which we grew. Some of them were tremendous and some of them were horrific. But Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, Savior of Saul of Tarsus, I pray that you will come into my life in this moment and save and redeem and change me. Start that work now, I pray. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful congregation spread out across northern Colorado and indeed around the world. We pray your blessing on all of them this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just before we go, I want to share with you this small liturgical prayer. Liturgy is a, is a rhythm. It's something that has lasted over the years. And if you would, why don't you out loud pray this with me? It'll be on your screen. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Amen. God bless you. Go in his grace and have a wonderful, wonderful week in him.